The official Aston Villa Supporters Trust. Star guests, players, famous fans. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here's Johnny Gould. In association with the Aston and Nietzsche's Food Bank and the Aston Villa Supporters Trust, here's a wonderful conversation about supporting the Villa through 58 years of ups and downs. The football ground guy, Simon Inglis, and the reacher guy, Lee Child, real name Jim Grant, were brought up on opposite sides of Birmingham and they went to King Edward's School in Edgbaston together. They both started their professional lives in Manchester as authors and thanks to Heather Martin who published Lee Child's autobiography in 2010 they realised they'd not only supported Villa for 58 years but they went to the same first game as well an 8-3 win over Leicester City when they were both seven in April 1962 and guess what they were unaccompanied by adults how times change Aston and Nietzsche's food bank provides an invaluable service to the community in these straitened times and you can donate to them via their website at astonnietzsche's.foodbank.org.uk astonnietzsche's.foodbank.org.uk the discussion about how life, society and villa has changed through the years is called from 8-3 to 7-2, celebrating our recent win over Liverpool. And here's Simon to take up the story. Edited extracts from a conversation that I had with another fellow sufferer of 58 years, the thriller writer, inventor of the Jack Reacher series of novels, Lee Child, who joined us all the way from Colorado, uh, to talk about um, our mutual uh, infatuation. It wasn't just a matter of fun, uh, there was a serious intent because the purpose of the event was to raise money for a very worthy cause, the Aston and Nietzsche's Food Bank, which is in the shadows of Villa Park and is going through a period where sadly all too many people need to have access to a food bank. Uh, it's said that a Jack Reacher novel sells every nine seconds somewhere on the planet. It is also reported by the Trussell Trust that uh, in this country, every nine seconds, a food parcel has to be given out to somebody in need. We'll give you details later so that if you've enjoyed these extracts, you too can contribute. And I kicked off uh, my questioning by saying to Lee, uh, April the 21st, 1962, we're both seven years old. What made you go to the match that day? What started it all off? So yeah, to, going back, I mean, thinking about this, I think we've got to lay down a couple of uh, assumptions, how different not only football was, but how different life was as a whole back then. Um, my family was, uh, intensely striving and aspirational. They were basically skilled working class people from the north of England, but absolutely desperate to join the middle class. And so a thing like football was regarded as utterly frivolous and uh, not to be indulged in at all. In fact, in general, in my family, anything that was fun or enjoyable was verboten. Um, a very sort of Calvinist or Puritan ethic without the religion. It was just um, all about that middle-class thing, deferred gratification, work hard, and so on and so forth. 
but at the same time, even though my parents were super uptight, super proper in that sense, they cleaved to what was normal back then, which was that um, on a weekend or on a school holiday, you had your breakfast and then it was none of your parents' business for the rest of the day, even though my parents were, were, were very conscientious and very normal and correct. I mean, not in any way negligent by the standards of the time, but you were just left on your own. And I had a friend at the road called David Harris, and uh, his dad worked in a little metalworking workshop in West Bromwich and had season tickets for both him and, and his son uh, to the Albion. And what would happen is every Saturday, David and I would walk up to this um, workshop at about just before lunch. And if his dad was free for the afternoon, they would go to the football and I would walk home. But very often, David's dad had to work overtime on the Saturday afternoon, and I would get his ticket. And I would more or less automatically get his ticket for the reserve games, uh, you know, the old Central League, which was, uh, you know, you would be away one Saturday at home the next Saturday. When you were away for the first team, the reserves would be playing at home in, in the full stadium to a pretty small crowd. And um, so, I saw some first division games with the Alpian and David, mostly the reserve games. And uh, I, I enjoyed it, you know, it was great just to walk up, because I lived more or less equidistant between the Hawthorns and Villa Park. So you walk one way, you go to the Hawthorns, and I had a good time there. Except I saw the Villa play away there, but it was a reserve game. And I remember Derek Dugan, so it must've been just after he arrived, maybe he was injured or something or coming back, he, he played for the reserves. And he was such a swashbuckler and the whole Villa side just looked uh, outrageous, sort of adventurous. And so in that sense, I, I abandoned the, uh, the Alpian and I thought, I'm gonna follow the Villa. What would happen is we had rats in our foundation under our house. And on a Saturday morning, we had a family thing, and this is absolutely true, where my dad would take a long broomstick and jab it in one entrance. And us boys would be at, the, at where the rats would come out with sticks and stumps and cricket bats and stuff. And we had to whack the rats as they came out. And for every one that we killed, my dad gave us a halfpenny. And uh, typically we would have, I don't know, fourpence halfpenny or fivepence or something like that at the end of the morning. And we would go to the sweet shop um, but I went to Villa Park instead. And again, this sounds weird now in, in the 21st century, but I was seven and a half. Um, at, at, you know how you counted the half years at that age. I was seven and a half and I walked to Villa Park, which was about two miles maybe. And um, I don't remember paying. I think what happened was, you know, I was a little kid and I, didn't really know where to go. I'd never been there before and knew basically the mechanics of a football ground. So I just followed a bunch of other people. And while they were paying, it was all cash at the turnstile back then. And while they were dumping their coins on the metal surface where the um, turnstile keeper counted it, they kind of snuck me behind their legs and I crawled under the turnstile. 
Um, not intending to, but that's, you know, just what happened. Exactly what I remember, yeah. It was sort of cinder, that cinder surface with uh, concrete curbs, and there were some barriers, but not all that many. Um, so you just stood there, and when you were little, you would be sort of fed down the hill to a place where you could see. And so I, I was there well in advance and basically had to wait 90 minutes for the game to start. Um, and then it was having been attracted to the villa because of this swashbuckling approach, I was hoping for something fun. And it was just wonderful. I mean, it was, um, as you know, 4-0 at half time or something like that. It was, goals were just raining in. And I thought, this is great. This is, this is what happens at the villa. You know, I'm committed for life now. Now, can, you're, you're, you are quite a tall chap. Um, were you quite a tall boy? I mean, did, did you have to go right down to the front or can you remember where you were? I was pretty, I was tall and pretty solid. Um, I remember, uh, I'm thin now because I'm, you know, I, 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 I uh, conduct myself very badly in terms of diet and consumption of various things. Uh, but I was, I was hefty uh, as a seven-year-old, pretty tall. Um, and uh, yeah, so I didn't go all the way down to the bottom because I intuitively felt that was a sort of, uh, you know, had to be avoided. It would, that would be to classify yourself with, with um, younger kids. And of course, at that age, you were desperate to be older than somebody. Uh, this is this is the Trinity Road stand, which is where I, I sat for the match. Uh, my story is slightly different in that, that um, my dad was a dentist in, in Moseley and uh, one of his patients offered um, myself and my uh, then 11-year-old brother, Jonathan, um, the, the, the tickets for this particular game. I have no recollection of how we got there. I'm assuming we must have been driven. But once we got to there, we were, we were completely on our own. We'd never been to a match before. Um, and like you, you know, my parents were pretty strict. They were very caring. But as you say, once you left the house, you were sort of left to your own devices. Um, and what I remember so much about that, I mean, of course, I would love to say that at the age of seven, I looked at the Trinity Road stand um, and fell in love with the building because later in life, I would then write the biography of Archibald Leach, the, the chap who designed that. Um, but I think what I remember more than the goals was the sort of the fug, the, the cigarette smoke, the being hugger-mugger with all these uh, adults and yet feeling completely safe. Um, it had a, a really strong effect on us. Um, Bobby Thompson, three goals. Derek Dugan, the Doog. Can you remember his haircut? Did he have the Mohican at that particular point, Lee? I remember it was as, a, as a shaved head. A shaved was, head, that's right. Yeah, which was uh, something that then Tony Haley joined in with later, as I recall. And uh, now, of course, everybody has a shaved head. But back then, it was... There was really only Yul Brynner in the whole world who, who shaved his head voluntarily. And so I, I was just struck by how radical it seemed um, and how sort of adventurous it was. Now we're going to uh, bring in now uh, somebody who uh, is well known to you uh, uh, and to many other Villa fans. Um, it's, it's the Aston Villa 
um, historian, uh, uh, Rob Bishop, who is joining us from just outside Birmingham. And I believe that in the course of your work, you met um, Bobby Thompson's, the hat-trick hero of April the 21st, 1962. Yes, I, I've got to know Bobby. He isn't in the best of health at the moment, but in recent years, I've seen quite a lot of him. And every time I met him, he would always say to me, have you got me that other goal yet? Because if you saw the scorers, it was Thompson three and there's Chalmers' own goal for Leicester. And Bobby, to this day, claims he should have had four goals because his shot just happened to hit Chalmers on the way in. Now, today, that would probably be allowed as the, the striker's goal. But it, they were very pernickety and, and it was an own goal, sadly, for Bobby. But he did get the hat-trick. When you think about it, only five years earlier they'd won the FA Cup. Uh, a year earlier they'd won the League Cup, the very first one. Uh, in fact, it was at the start of that 61-62 season. And I think at that time with the Mercer's Miners, there was so much optimism, so much youth in the team. Um, and there was a feeling they could go a long way. But sadly, over the course of the next few years, as we know, it deteriorated a bit. Well, a, a bit, a lot, uh, uh, culminating in, in relegation, ultimately, to the third division. OK, Robert Lee, yes, after, after the 15-gold gold fest at Easter, um, typical Aston Villa, it sort of imploded. I, I wonder, Lee, have you ever read this wonderful book, The Children of the Revolution, by Richard Whitehead? No, I haven't. Uh, well, you, you must get hold of it. It's the story of the 70s. And, and Richard tells some wonderful stories about the, 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 the way that Villa was run. Charlie Aitken, he quotes, saying that the club was run like a corner shop in those days. Um, Eric, uh, Eric Woodward, who later became Villa's first commercial manager, he said when he was reporting for the Birmingham Mail that he attended a training session and all the players had their ordinary day clothes on underneath their tracksuits for the entire session. Um, he also says that the, ch the chairman at the time, uh, well, one of the board members, Norman Smith, who later became the chairman, um, such was the sort of small time nature of the club is that Norman Smith uh, lived in rented digs in Hansworth and used to go to matches on the bus. It was a different world. It was a completely different world. And I think that to, to some extent, you know, historically you can look back and say the Villa really suffered from uh, how narrow and parochial its ownership and management was. But I think we've also got to remember that all the clubs were the same. Um, it was, uh, to any kid who's grown up in the modern era, the Premier League era, or, you know, the big, billion dollar corporation era of football. Um, we'll find this hard to believe, but it, it, everything was, was like a corner shop. It was very rag bag. It was uh, generally speaking, very small time, limited ambition, um, very narrow horizons. I mean, uh, no foreign players whatsoever. I mean, a foreign player was Irish or Scottish. 
maybe Welsh, but there was uh, no foreign input, no money, no no nothing. Everything was very um, half-baked. Uh, it was just looking ludicrously small time compared to today. And I think, to be honest, the villa got into a kind of downward spiral because of that. Um, and because of not its fault at all, but the way that Birmingham as a city was viewed by the rest of England. Um, you know, I was always, as I grew up, as I grew older, I was always very aware of how um, the rest of Britain kept Birmingham at arm's length. It was kind of like the New Jersey of England, uh, the butt of jokes and, and the, the assumption it was grim and awful. And I think in a way that still applies today. You know, I think that if you were to, you know, if, suppose that you were magically transformed into a 20 year old Brazilian hotshot uh, and you had a lot of tr transfer interests from the Premier League, where would the city of Birmingham geographically place itself on your list? You know, you'd be thinking of London or Manchester or Liverpool. And I think to a large extent, we still suffer from that. Uh, a kind of regional bias against the Midlands. Um, also at the time in the 60s, um, this is sort of dredging back into the memory bank, but um, really there was a point when Villa were on the slide and Birmingham City, um, they, they changed their kit and they played in all blue. They had a mascot, they had a, a magazine, they had a souvenir shop, which Villa didn't have. And then at Coventry, which is the, the city that you were born in, um, they had the Jimmy Hill, Derek Robbins, Sky Blue Revolution. They were, they were, there were two very sexy clubs on our doorstep. Um, this occasion, 1982, uh, when we won the European Championships. Lee, obviously we both remember this. I believe that you were in Manchester. I was certainly in Manchester. I watched this on a very small television in Didsbury. Where, where were you? I was at work. I was I was part of the uh, broadcast. I was at Granada in Manchester. It was an ITV game, so I was on the receiving end uh, for the live broadcast, which was uh, you know something that we had all the time. I mean, again, looking back uh, now, people are used to live football on the television constantly. You can pick pretty much any game you want. Uh, certainly here in the States, uh, NBC has a thing where literally you can watch every single Premier League game if you want to uh, uh, on one channel or another. But back then there was nothing on the television and working in television was great because for star soccer or match of the day and all that kind of stuff, obviously the games were being recorded and you, you could see them incoming. And so we had live football all the time. And so watching that game... Uh, you know, I was at work, so I was professionally responsible for making sure that the broadcast went well and happily there were no problems at all. And um, so I was just watching it as a fan and I, I was intensely nervous, obviously. I, I assumed that uh, Bayern would, would win. But, and of course then when Jimmy Rimmer went off, it was, um, because again, back then it was not squad football, you know. You, the the uh, the reserve goalkeeper was somebody that you'd probably never seen before, uh, and so it was a huge shock after eight minutes. And so I thought, oh, here we go. But then it just got better and better and better and better. And um, I knew that 
five or 10 seconds before they scored, I knew they were going to score because I'd been watching Tony Morley so, so long by that point that there was a particular physical sign that Morley would indicate when he was going to beat a player, when you just knew there was no problem. He would throw his arms up. He would always throw his arms out from his side. But when they were exactly horizontal and parallel to the ground, his balance was just right. And you knew that he was going to beat his guy. And so I saw it happen, knowing that it was going to happen. And I have, I, there was a minor heart attack uh, when Peter Wood decided to play it with his shin pad rather than his foot. But I knew the goal was coming 10 seconds in advance. And so then it was a question, could we hold out? And of course, Bayern had the, the ball in the net afterward uh, for an offside goal. Um, and you, at the second it happens, you don't know it's offside necessarily. So that my heart sank a little bit. Then I thought, now we've got to do it again. But the goal was chalked off. So uh, yeah, I, I just love that. And I, most of my friends at work were Spurs fans for some reason. And um, I remember them all calling me at the final whistle, one after the other, sort of grudgingly saying congratulations. Very aware that, of course, Spurs have never won it and probably never will. And so, you know, moments like that were just total magic. Was then years later, obviously, when Rob um, set up the meeting with with Sid uh, at Villa Park, hearing his side of it, his his side of that whole era, it was so different to what we fans imagined it must be like. Um, you know, it was a uh, his account of that game was uh, quite amazing to me. I've, uh, he said they, they, they knew they would win. They were, uh, because they totally trusted the defense. They figured they would at least nick one goal. So they knew they would win. They were totally relaxed. Allegedly, Gary Shaw was so relaxed. With 15 minutes to go, he wasn't even changed. He was, um, he was at some back gate giving tickets to his mates. It's, it's a heroic bunch, isn't it? I mean, they look solid, they look relaxed. Um, I, I have to confess, I need a bit of help with identifying one or two of those players. Um, I don't know if you're a believer in nominative determinism, um, Lee, but certainly Nigel Spink is not the sort of name that inspires confidence, but he went on to have a wonderful, wonderful uh, Aston Villa career. And um, I think even now I can look at that picture and feel sort of genuine affection. And just remember, you talked about Tony Morley. Um, for me, my Tony Morley moment was standing at Goodison at the away game. And I think it was maybe match of the day we're following it. And I think it made goal of the season. But each one of those players had real character. They were individuals, and yet they, they blended together for a team. And we're going to talk about, because that's what football fans do, um, we're going to talk a little bit about um, some of our favourite players. Um, sorry for all the non-Aston Villa fans, but you, you were warned, really. Now, this is your, your um, the, the favourite Villa eleven that you chose when you were asked to by the Villa programme. Um, 
mine is very similar, but yeah. it's interesting how both of us have chosen players who were certainly not the best. I mean, Charlie Aitken was part of the furniture at Villa Park, um, you know, but he, 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 and he was a lovely man. I, I met him uh, several times in later years. Um, but so I'm torn between who do I choose? And as soon as I choose an 11, I immediately regret it and feel bad for leaving other people out. You've, got, you've also got to look at it in the context of the time, because the thing that, looking back on it now, that amazes me about 81, winning the league, 82, winning the European Cup is, I mean, certainly for that 80, 81 league win, we used 14 players uh, in the entire season. And at least probably two of those um, replacements were because of suspension. Um, rather than injury. It was just always a constant team. And by coincidence, Liverpool had won the league the year before in 80 and done it again with 14 players, which I believe is um, the all-time record for uh, low numbers in consecutive seasons. And so I asked uh, Cowens, you know, how is that possible? Where now you've got to have a squad of 35 and, you know, you, nobody could possibly play more than two games a week without collapsing in a heap. I said, you know, what's different then? And he said, uh, we were in, all injured all the time. It was just that we played through it because we were afraid of losing our place. Uh, a, a completely different attitude. And so that is why my first 11 is, is heavy on that period, because um, there were... You know, those were durable, reliable players who, who showed up and gave 99% every single time. Let's, um, let's talk about Paul McGrath because he, he, he figures in both our favourite 11s and I think most Villa fans who ever saw him play would, would agree that, that there was no one really like quite like Paul McGrath. You know, he, had, he came to us from Manchester United, his knees were dodgy, he had a serious drink problem, he seemed very sort of quiet and uncommunicative um, on the pitch. And yet he was masterful. Um, and, and this was a period um, when I, I too had a season ticket at Villa Park and, and my wife, uh, Jackie, started coming with me and, and she just fell in love. She just came to watch Paul McGrath. It's funny you say that actually, because to watch Paul McGrath is something that I, I literally did. I. Uh, like I said, I had a bunch of friends at the time. Some, most of them were Spurs fans, some were Manchester United fans. And we all got into this thing where we would just watch our favourite player and nobody else. And if you watched McGrath, it was like he was playing the opposition all by himself half the time. Uh, and, you know, one attack after another, he repulsed or head out. And if you watched him individually, you had no clue what he was doing. He would run to some particular spot or limp, actually, to hobble to some particular spot. And you'd think, why? What's, why? What's he doing there? And then a second later, the ball would come to him and he'd clear it. He, was, uh, he, he really was one of those guys. I mean, we put it in thrillers all the time. He, he, he knew what was going to happen five seconds before anybody else. He, he absolutely did. Let's talk about Gordon Cowens, because again, he, he figures in both our favourite 11s. Um, I, I, I liked Gordon because I think he was the sort of player that I wanted to become. 
um, he had this ability to to strike the ball a bit like some kids um, uh, toss pebbles onto the water and it skims. He 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 curled the ball and yet he drove it at the same time and he always found the incisive pass. But also he he was sort of to use the vernacular he was one of us. Um, his father had been uh, the kit man at Aston Villa. And uh, later on, uh, you met him. And you say in, uh, you're quoted in your biography as saying that uh, you'd met all the great people in the world, um, uh, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, uh, Tom Cruise, but meeting Gordon Cowens was one of the highlights of your life. Is that true? Totally true, yeah. I mean, I mean, literally the highlight of my life because he was, in my opinion, uh, truly world-class, really the only player that we've ever had that you could guarantee would walk into any other team anywhere. Um, small, slight individual with, uh, uh, you know, no real physical power that was apparent, but just a fabulous striker of the ball, again, intelligent. And he also had this thing that, um, that I have seen in, in certain very few elite athletes that if something needed to happen, he would make it happen. Uh, you know, he would deliver. You could guarantee that if something was utterly necessary, he would deliver it. And do you remember, I guess it would be the season after we won the European Cup when we were automatically in it again for the following season. And uh, we played Juventus, and we were behind within 40 seconds or something like that. Um, March, I guess it was. And, um, you know, we needed an equalizer. And I was watching it again on a live television feed at work. And you could just see at one point, he said, right, we are going to score a goal now. And he played the ball out to the left and ran for the area, met the cross and scored. And that was just sheer, utter willpower power and that is what an elite athlete has he, he will make it happen when it is truly necessary and then I mean the tragedy for Cowens was the broken leg in um, when was that summer eight, uh, was that the summer of 83 or something like that or 85 it, it, somewhere in the in a friendly in Spain it, horrendous leg break that uh, he was out for a year and the point was that he he had very late on, because it's the villa, very late on he'd been picked for England and looked like a total natural to me. Like, uh, my guess is if he had not broken his leg, he would have had a hundred caps because he was just so useful. Um, and I felt the broken leg was obviously a terrible tragedy in every way, but including in the England career. And when I met him, I, I said, uh, you know, that must have been awful. But he told me something that was very touching, really. I said, it was, it was horrible that you broke your leg like that. And he said, no, it's, <clears throat> it saved my life. And I said, really, what do you mean? He, he said, because, you know, it happened in Spain. He was hauled off with his leg all strapped up and splinted and everything, hauled off to the hospital. And the trauma surgeon was taking a look at his leg. And then all of a sudden he said, what's that? And, and pointed to a thing on his face. And uh, as far as Cowens knew at that point, it was just a spot or, you know, something he wasn't thinking anything about. 
but it turned out to be some horrendously malignant tumor, uh, a cancer growing up on his face. And um, he, he subsequently had it uh, removed, obviously, and recovered completely. And if you look at later photographs of him, you'll see that his nostril is actually stitched to his cheek in order to cover up the, the um, removal. Mm. Uh, but if, if he hadn't broken his leg, and if that doctor had not asked that question, he would probably have died within a year or two mm. because it was uh, just a random discovery. So, you know, that sort of changed my mind a little bit that you can, not everything is as bad as it looks, you know. He, there was a silver lining to that. Well, you know, that is, a, that is a theme that runs throughout the Jack Reacher novels. Now, I'm going to move straight on now to the, to the Jack Reacher novels, because as many people will know, you have put in Aston Villa names into your characters. Here's the full list as far as uh, we can ascertain, um, starting with your very first novel. Um, and in your second novel, um, you mentioned Paul McGrath, who yeah. is an FBI agent who um, is described um, as um, having the undying respect and blind affection of the agents he worked with, a remote but approachable, a sort of tireless guy who radiates total confidence. Um, you must have had the most wonderful fun writing Aston Villa um, into the novels. And uh, I'm now going to ask Rob, um, to read from us uh, a section of your second novel. Uh, Rob, if you would like to come in and uh, share us where the Jack Reacher public are um, initiated into the uh, love affair that uh, Lee Child has with his favourite football team. Yeah, I mean, this is, is just amazing. This was the first uh, Reacher novel that I read. I got, I got to it a bit late. Uh, so I missed the first one and there were a few after, but this was the first one I read, Die Trying. And it's it's remained my favourite because of the links that are there with Milosevic and McGrath and York, who's actually a mining town, an abandoned mining town in the book. Uh, but at the start of this book, uh, Jack Reacher actually is kidnapped along with an FBI agent called Holly Johnson. Uh, and... Polly Johnson, I'm not sure if that was meant to be Tommy Johnson. I never did ask Lee that one. Um, but uh, they're in a truck going across America, and it turns out that her dad is the, the top uh, military guy in the USA, although at the time, Reacher doesn't know that. So this is a conversation during a kidnap going across America, and Reacher asks, you're picked up on soccer in Europe. Right, Holly said. Really big deal there. We were stationed one time near Munich. I was just a kid, 11 maybe. They gave my father tickets to some big game in Rotterdam, Holland. European Cup, the Bayern Munich team against some English team. Aston Villa. Have you heard of them? Reacher nodded. I hated the Germans, Holly said. So arrogant, so overpowering. They were so sure they were going to cream those Brits. I didn't want to go and watch it happen. But I had to, right? NATO protocol sort of thing. It would have been a big scandal if I'd refused. So we went. 
and the Brits claimed the Germans. The Germans were furious. I loved it. And the Aston Villa guys were so cute. I was in love from soccer from that night. Still am. Thank you. Wonderful. So <laughs> I, I was in love with Jack Reacher from then on. That's awesome. And I, I'll, there is one tiny little bit of uh, insider information about that. That was my second book. And I hadn't really got my feet under the table totally in terms of international sales and all of that. So that is the only time that I've ever changed anything for a foreign edition. For the German edition of that book, I took out that line, I hated the Germans. <laughs> so that I could get cool. Thank you very much. And we're gonna speed forward because we're gonna to take five minutes now to talk about the 7-2. Lee? Where were you on the night of the 7-2? I, I have to say, I like to think that you're in a bar, a, a very cool sports bar in Manhattan, and that Tom Hanks has dropped in to watch the match with you. Uh, perhaps Villa's co, one of Villa's co-owners, Wes Edens, um, in, in Manhattan has dropped in. You have a few nice cocktails and you're watching the match. H how was it for you? I might have, you know, in a normal year, I probably would have been in New York, but this year I've been hiding out in, at our ranch in Wyoming, which is a virtually uninhabited and, and uh, completely empty state. It's one of those big square states in the West of America. It is actually larger than the United Kingdom in terms of physical space, but it has a population similar to Leicester, sort of thinly spread out. I'm 10 miles from the nearest paved road, uh, completely isolated. So I was watching it on my satellite. As I said, NBC, the Premier League is a big deal in America. You know, there's a, there's a valuable male college demographic that is really into Premier League football. And so it's covered extensively. And so I was watching it on NBC Sports Network. Um, and I had a feeling, you know, because if you go way back in the 70s, we once beat Liverpool 5-1 and I think we were 5-0 up at half time and you just have those feelings sometimes and I thought this might you know this might work because it, it has been such a weird season uh, without the fans and I have to say that in all my years of going to football the Villa Park crowd is incredibly hostile towards its own players um, in a way that you don't, you know, it can be totally justified. I'm not criticizing it, but in a lot of other clubs, there's more discretion about it. But especially the women, the older women are just vicious to anybody who's underperforming. And I wondered if playing without fans was going to be better for Villa than playing with the home crowd. Um, and of course, we had ex we've had extraordinary games this year without the fans, without the preseason, and so on. So and it was up for grabs. I felt anything could happen, and uh, it was just one of those fantasy. For us, it's much. You know, I'm seven hours behind the UK, so it was a, a daytime thing for me, and it was just one of those fantasy two hours where everything went in. I mean, we've all suffered. The reverse, you know, where you lose, where nothing works. Well, this was one of those games where everything works. And it was just every deflection went in. Everything works. It was fantastic. And uh, it was uh, just, yeah, definitely in the catalogue of all-time great Villa experiences, especially if anybody would have done, but doing it to Liverpool was... Um, 
I, I have a uh, I have a friend, a Liverpool supporter, so I, I texted him and said, uh, "What's the time? I think my watch is broken. It's always saying seven past Liverpool." <laughs> well, I, I I remember the five-one that when the uh, BBC uh, newscaster read the result out, actually said, "I think there's a mistake here. We'll check that." Yeah. Um, I, I was watching the 7-2. We, we'd been up to the Silly Isles and we were stranded on St Mary's by Storm Alex. So I was watching the game on this uh, little uh, iPad in a, in a hotel in St Mary's, knocking back the red wine. And I, I just felt I was in a parallel universe. I, I wasn't even sure if it was real, if I was watching some sort of broadband mishmash that was going wrong, that it couldn't be. And, and, and this is one of the issues about being the fan of a faltering club. And let's be honest, the vast majority of clubs are faltering at one point or another, um, is that when success does come to you, you don't quite know how to deal with it. And of course, we are now in a position, I'm going to come to Robin now, where Aston Villa are probably in the best shape that they have been for maybe even our lifetimes. Rob? Possibly, yes. It's, I mean, it's, it's hard to, to define. Uh, I mean, there have been some great times since, since the, the European Cup years and the Championship. I mean, the mid-90s was successful. Uh, when they had two League Cup victories and that one great season when semi-final of the FA Cup and fourth in the league as well. Um, and then you had the Martin O'Neill era, which sadly went wrong in the end and it's been downhill ever since. But right now with these owners, I, I think they it's going to take time. A lot of supporters think it will happen immediately and it won't. We've In the short term, we've had disappointment straight after the 7-2. We haven't won at home since, have we? But yes, I think we're now in a position where we can press ahead with the backing of good people. And there are good people at the club as well running it. Uh, and I think that's vital too. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. <coughs> Lee, Lee, do you yeah, feel optimistic? I do. I mean, I, I think, as, as Rob said, the, the important word is early stages. It's early days yet. We're not quite there. But everything now has to be so instant and has to be so quick and immediate. But these things take a long time. I mean, and uh, so I think we've got to give Smith time, but the progress is going there. And I think happily this year, we probably will not be involved in a relegation battle. So, you know, let's push on and, and do even better next year. There, there speaks the true Villa fan. Happily this year, we won't be involved in a relegation <laughs> battle. <laughs> and I think that is a perfect note on, on which we must conclude tonight's um, wonderful event. Lee, thank you so much indeed for joining us. Please, let's not have another 50 years before we uh, talk to each other again. I, there's loads of other things I want to try and test your memory on, but perhaps we better not do that publicly. Well, let's, let's make a date that assuming that everybody's vaccinated in, in April of 2022 at Easter time, we should go to the game for a 60th anniversary of because it is extraordinary, two seven-year-olds independently going to their first ever Villa game. We should commemorate the anniversary. I, that's, that's a, a great story for the programme. That's a deal. We've, <laughs> we've got a deal. We'll watch Jack Grealish, who will still be there. Dean Smith will still be there. Two local lads. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great 
blessing and it's a great burden to be the supporter of any club. It is happenstance that at the moment we're on the way up, but it is also a, a, a fact that being a football fan, a bit like being Jack Reacher, I imagine, you're, you're in for the long game. <laughs>